Hello and welcome to Clinically Thinking. I'm Dr. Lisa Chantler. Today's topic is chair work. Chair work is a powerful therapeutic art and modality that was first created in the 1960s and 70s by Fritz Perls and Jacob Marino. In the 1990s, chair work became one of the foundation pillars of schema therapy experiential techniques. It wasn't until Scott Keller wrote his book on transformational chair work that chair work had a kind of renaissance as a standalone approach to working with clinical problems. My guest today, Amanda Garcia-Torres, works closely with Dr. Kellogg in training clinicians across the globe in chair work. And I've asked Amanda to speak to us about using chair work in general terms and in particular in working with the marginalised. Amanda Garcia-Torres, licensed mental health clinician, is a certified chairwork psychotherapist and co-director at the Chairwork Psychotherapy Initiative. Mr. Garcia-Torres received her master's degree in counselling for mental health and wellness from New York University and also has completed training in voice dialogue. She began her journey with the Chairwork Psychotherapy Project back in 2013 and has trained clinicians across the globe. Her presentations and writings have addressed topics including chair work, trauma recovery, social justice, and identity issues. Ms. Garcia Torres is in private practice at Chairwork Therapy, New York City. All right, Amanda, it's fantastic to be speaking with you today. I'm really glad Hello. to see you. Thank you for yeah. making the time for us. Now I get to ask you some lovely questions, and I really want to get into discussions around um, about chair work, and especially working with marginalised groups. I'm very keen to hear about your work and experience and knowledge in that area. But first, I would like to ask you some questions about yourself. I'm, I think our listeners would be keen to learn um, some about you. So can you tell us about yourself, Amanda? Of course. <laughs> so, so yes, I'm uh, Amanda Garcia-Torres, and um, I am a licensed mental health counsellor from the U.S., um, from New York City. Um, so in the United States, there's a lot of different tracks for pursuing um, psychology and therapy. Mm-hmm. So we have the doctoral degree tracks, which is if you have a doctoral degree, you can be a psychologist, or you have the master's level graduate tracks. And I'm someone who took the master's level. So I am technically a licensed mental health counselor, or I can use the um, the term psychotherapist. Okay. I, I recently learned that in other countries like Australia, psychotherapist is actually not a clinical license. Our clinical That's profession, right. well, whereas right. in the U.S. it is. Yes, in the U.S. it is regulated. Right. So in the U.S., yeah, psychotherapy, you can only call yourself that if you have the license, you have a specific level of education, okay. all that stuff. Right. Um, so that's so that's my professional track. Okay. I am the co-director at the Chairwork Psychotherapy Initiative with my amazing colleague and work partner, Dr. Scott Kellogg. And also I'm in private practice and my private practice is called Chairwork Therapy NYC. And it Mm -hmm. is now a completely virtual practice Ah. and an entirely chairwork focused private clinical practice. Right. Mm -hmm. That's very interesting. But before we get onto that, I am keen. Um, I'd like to um, ask a little bit about how you got into chairwork. You know, there are, it's not the kind of mainstream therapeutic approach. (laughs) I wouldn't have thought so. How does a young clinician or young student I think is when you kind yeah. of started getting into it suddenly find themselves um, learning about chair work yeah that's a that's a that's a very good question because it's definitely I would say kind of the the fringe decision the fringe thing to pursue especially from the states mm. um, so I found Scott totally by chance so I was still in my master's level program I think um, we were in the semester where you take all the, the different theories. So I was in a theories course, and one of my good classmates, who at the time was a friend as well, told me, hey, there's a guy. He's a professor at NYU. I went mm-hmm. to NYU. Yeah. And at the time, Scott was a professor still. Um, and he does these 
chair work or whatever, yeah. <laughs> empty chair. <laughs> weird stuff. These weird things. Yeah. We had just finished watching the Fritz Pearls um, videos where he works with Gloria. So the Fritz yes, we've all done Rogers. I think every yeah. psychologist in the, in the country in Australia has seen Gloria. Yes, it is required. We all know about Pearls and his chain smoking. Yes. <laughs> we do indeed. Yes, we all know. So we just watched those recently. And she said, yes, yeah, so I think it's something sort of like Pearls. And we both thought he was kind of an interesting guy. Um, and so I just went sort of on, on a whim, somewhat last minute. And I was immediately taken by it. It's just incredible. And, you know, part of the trainings has always been live demonstrations. Yes. And it was like nothing I had ever seen. It was yes. so beyond what I thought was possible yes. in therapy, what I thought was possible in psychology. Oh. I did a really powerful, um, so I volunteered oh, to yeah. do a demonstration with Scott the first time I attended. Um, and at the time I was a clinical intern at a site working with very, very traumatized young people. So highly traumatized youth at, at a place where the interns, unfortunately, weren't given the adequate clinical support and guidance okay. to get through the work. So looking back now, I can, yeah, it was a huge shame. Mm. Looking back now, I see that I was on my way to being vicariously traumatized. Okay, yeah, that's not So great. I was on my way to a very early vicarious traumatization and burnout, which oh, before- that's terrible. Yeah, it's horrible. Yeah, it's a um, A client literally comes in saying, you know, yesterday I was raped. It's like, what do you want me to do with that? Yes. Like, that's horrifying. And I feel for these young people. I love these young people. And I'm horrified. And we're both just traumatized in the room together. Oh, it's not okay. Um, so what did you do? Did you do? <laughs> I survived. So I did my best. What I did was I found chair work, yeah. basically. Um, so I did a volunteer demonstration with Scott and where I spoke with um spoke with one of my, the clients I was working with that I was just, um, you know, we have these first clients that you get to really love mm, and like, and she was, yeah, she was seen <laughs> by the site as a difficult young person. Mm -hmm. And so naturally I was like, but she's so amazing. Yeah. You know? Yeah. She's difficult. And also she's amazing. Yes. I just saw her energy and so seeing her suffer so much was heartbreaking. Um, so in that demonstration, I was able to have a relationships and encounters confrontational dialogue with her parents oh, um, right. and with the people who are harming her um, and just really okay. kind of have a cathartic release of the anger at the injustice and the pain of that. And then he, the genius that Scott is, he then had me speak to the client and imagine the client there in a really beautiful way. I was able to let her know the sadness I had, the connection I felt to her and sort of how I was feeling lost as such a young barely starting out clinician. Right. Um, and I got so much from that, from doing that. I was able to work more effectively with her. I felt a lot more protected. Protected. That's um, what I was wondering whether that yeah. exercise helped protect you and um, from the emerging uh, burnout yeah. so early in, yes. in your career. Yeah, I felt like I can stay in the fight. I have something to do and I better understand what's going on here. So at least I have that. Um, yeah. And so after that point, I kept going to workshops. Once I started my first clinical job, I would take days off of work to go to workshops. Um, and Scott couldn't get rid of me. Uh, <laughs> no, you just hung on like a koala. I just, yes, I hung, exactly <laughs> like a koala. I just hung on. Like, I'm here. I'm here. Um, and so and, the time you all kind of, it seems that that's become now your only, is it modality? I'm not sure whether that's yes. the right word. But yes, it, yes, yes. When I became fully licensed, Scott gave me the amazing opportunity to formally train and study with him. Fantastic. So he said, well, if you want to do this, if you really want to do this seriously, you know, these are the steps you need to complete. And he put together an individualized training, or essentially what was, now looking back, what was a full certification program. So let's just let's talk about this thing called chair. We're sort of using the word, and I'm, I'm aware that lots of our listeners will not know what this thing is called chair work. So if you could uh, start there explaining, that would be fantastic. Yeah, of course. Chair work, you know, as, as we define it, is a dynamic experiential modality that essentially moves from two basic beliefs. The first that if we invite a patient to sit in a, 
a chair and have an imaginal encounter from someone for their past, present, or future, that can be healing. Or if we invite someone using several chairs to have a dialogues or multiple dialogues between their different parts and themselves, you know, also healing and integration can occur. Mm. So it's a very emotionally intense, energetic, um, very in some ways very dramatic way of working. Uh, it can be an integrative technique, and I know in schema theory it's, it's used as a technique, um, right. for example. Or um, it can be a standalone psychotherapeutic modality, which is how I practice. Um, and along with Scott, we've worked together to establish this as something that does have a real foundation, a DNA. It has a very formal framework. So it can be an integrative technique or a modality. Okay. So I know um, that a lot of our listeners will be um, familiar with schema work because schema work is well embedded. Schema therapy is well embedded in the Australian community. Uh, It's quite strong. Uh, I have a lot of listeners though from around the world, but um, schema therapy and chair, chair work in schema therapy is one of the experiential techniques, isn't it? I mean, imagery scripting is yeah. another one. These are the kind of two pillars, if you like, of the experiential work in schema therapy. Um, but chair work, as I've experienced it, certainly, you know, as a separate standalone modality is so different from how we use it, in, you know, in schema therapy. But how um, chair work then um, functions as a standalone modality? Yeah, yeah. No, that's, a, that's a great question. So um, we're using this as a really a standalone modality and the way myself and Scott practices, the base of everything that we are doing are what's called the four dialogues. Okay. The four dialogues are the basic four basic structures that hold, you know, we can think of all psychotherapeutic dialogue work and really every issue that we will run into in psychotherapy. Um, so these are four basic dialogue structures that we are always moving from. So we're always doing either relationships and encounters or giving voice or storytelling or internal dialogues. So there mm-hmm. are four basic things that we can use independently or in combination with each other. Um, so well, the skill in using chair work is working out uh, which which of those dialogues is the appropriate one to use? Yes. The person yes. comes to the door, they've been there, talk about their problems, what they want to work on, and sorting out, you know, in your head. I know that for me, sometimes I'm in a session, I'm thinking, radio, <laughs> what's going to be the, what am I going to do here? What's, you know, what is the dialogue I need to be having? And is that is that the way it sort of works in session? Yeah. So at, at any given point, you're in one of those spaces. So. Yeah. In this way, you know, I find that therapy is actually beautifully, beautifully simple mm-hmm. in a way. And there's always something to do. Like I, I don't, I don't have moments in my practice where I'm wondering, oh, what can I, what can I do today, or what can I do in this moment? Mm. It's I go to one of those four dialogues and I'm off, and yeah. something can happen from that place. Um, so it's, it's very, very empowering in that way and very organizing. It kind of creates a really a wonderful container for everything, really breaking things down, um, yes. making them less complicated, which can be great when we're with patients or clients who are very much overrun by their issues, their emotions, kind of all over the place. So it helps us really contain. In a great right. Way. So every, every, every session is you're looking for one of those dialogues, one of those four uh, Yes. Uh, is going to be the, the way in which the session is oriented around, if you like. Yeah, yeah. Can you maybe give us a little example of, is there something come to mind that that might be helpful to illustrate that for our listeners? Yeah. Well, I'm going to actually turn that back to you. So give me an issue, maybe something something that's, that's kind of sticky for you or someone you're working with, and I'll just tell you what I would do. Okay, that's... Um, Put me on the spot. Uh, <laughs> We're sharing the spot. <laughs> We're sharing the spot. Yeah, I've got a client. Well, can I talk about a client? No one. Whatever you want. Whatever yeah, you want. Uh, well, he's struggling with uh, feelings of disloyalty towards you know family members. Okay. And family members who caused difficulties in the past, and got it. Uh, working with that person on. Um, feeling able to uh, speak about those issues so that some of the trauma work can be undertaken, if you know what I'm saying. Yes. Um, you know, because when if you feel you're disloyal in talking about family members and what they might mm-hmm. kind of, you know, trauma they might have inflicted on you, then it's 
it's hard to do the work. It's hard to do that next level of the trauma work. So yeah. just from that sentence, I've got four different dialogues I would do. Fantastic. Let's hear about that. that. <laughs> I'm going to take notes. <laughs> Free consult. No, this is great. I hope we both get something helpful. Yes, absolutely. I hope. Um, so, right, when we're talking about this person wanting to, to feel stronger and expressing themselves, we can think about assertiveness. Yeah. Having engaging in an assertiveness dialogue, or maybe imagining having a conversation with someone else, which would be a relationships and encounters dialogue. Right. So maybe they want to practice holding boundaries with their parents. Okay, well, let's imagine that they're here in the room and let's rehearse. Let's play around with that so that you feel a lot more powerful and strong. So doing that. Yeah. Um, again, that's when it is a rehearsal. If it's not okay. a rehearsal, yeah, yeah. and we just want to give time and space to the difficult feelings, which is generally what we would want to do first, then we would just engage in a just a straight up relationships and encounters dialogue with the difficult family. So as a group or one by one collectively. Um, so, all right. So again, I'm just going to stick with the parents thing because that's where we started. Yes. And so imagine your mom and dad there and talk to them about your frustration or whatever the presenting, the primary emotion is, yes, yes. and then encouraging them to really speak frankly to their parents, yes. reminding this person over and over because they might feel bad. I know this is weird. You, I know you would probably not dare talk to your parents this way, mm. but this is for your benefit and your process. I'm not going to ask you to call them on the phone and tell them this. <laughs> I'm not going to ask them to join us. Mm. This is just for you. So anything you say, I'm not going to expect you repeat to them. So yes. some patients will really need that sort of permission. Mm -hmm. And then if they need the help, feed them the lines. Yes. So say, okay, try telling mom and dad. Just try this. Yes. Mom, dad, I hate when you call me 20 times every night. If I don't pick up, I'm busy. I'm a grown-up. I have my own life. So try that. Express the anger, the frustration. And then see if there's sadness. This person might have sadness about what's going on. You know, I want to be close to you, but you don't respect the choices I've made in my life. You know, or when I'm with you, I feel terrible and that breaks my heart because I love you or whatever it is. Joy, love, if there's fear there, right, that's where that can go. You know, I'm frightened to talk to you. I'm frightened to feel these feelings because you're so intimidating to me. So we want them to go through what's called the cycle of emotions. Tell so, us about that. Tell us about the cycle of emotions. Yeah. So in doing relationships and encounters work, we encourage someone to speak from, you know, fear when it's appropriate, if that's anger, love, or grief and loss. So usually there's some combination of all or at least some of those things in a difficult relationship. So, so you want can, someone to go through all of them. I can imagine you might... You have those orienting principles in your head. If you're thinking mm -hmm. about the cycle of emotions, you'd be thinking about fear and mm -hmm. asking around, what, what do you, what do you feel? What, what, what might you ask? How might you express? So, um, that? so it might be, you know, so as you see your parents, I'm wondering if is there some sadness you want to share with them or I'm wondering if you might feel some anger. Do you want to speak from your anger or, you know, yeah. Or maybe this person has love, right? And often in our difficult relationships, there is great love as well, which is mm -hmm. kind of is what it makes them difficult is that there is also love. So we invite someone, you know, you can also express your love toward them. You know, so mom, dad, you, you've worked so hard so I can have a good life. You know, you were always there for me when I was a kid. You defended me from the neighborhood bullies or again, whatever it is, you know, and I love that about you and I love you, but we make room for all of it, yes. not just some of it. And that is so important. So it, in, in, in some of what you're saying, there's this there's the feeding the lines. Like you've got to know mm -hmm. about your client, right? You've got to yes. know some stuff about them before you can, um, not just some stuff about them, but you've got to know what's in their heart to a certain extent. What, um, not really. Yeah? I, say. I mean, it helps when we know. Oh, yeah, right. it totally helps. I love when yeah. I know. Right. <laughs> but... Um, so the feeding the lines, you know, you might say, try this and if it doesn't mm -hmm. fit, it doesn't matter. If it doesn't, if it doesn't fit, that's okay because yeah, right. that's information either way. Okay. So it's not about imposing, like in this hypothetical example with this person, I'm not imposing that they have sadness. I'm not imposing that they have anger, yeah. but I'm using this line feeding as a way to open the door in case there's anything behind it. 
And if there's not, then that's great information for me to know because it helps us right, collaborate on the dialogue together. It seems, and I'm interested in your thoughts around this, that it helps get to things, chair work helps to get to the core of the issues fast. Yes, absolutely. You know, I would sometimes say to clients, you just, one session is like five sessions of talkie therapy. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we just, yeah. So, yeah, that's so something fast. you agree with. Yeah, right. So yes. um, when you feed a line, you know, and you say, try this, if it fits, you know, it mm-hmm. doesn't, okay, we know that's a dead end. Yeah, yeah. Or or re re kind of do your own editing. Okay, well then find the right word or say it yeah. in the in the correct way. Yes. Um so it kind of takes the pressure off of us to know everything totally accurately, which I find really freeing <laughs> that I don't always have to know everything. Um and gives yeah, it gives the, the client a lot more freedom and they can find what their truth is. But I'm just opening the door so I can find really what's at the depths in their own heart or in their own suffering. Um, and I had, I've had multiple patients at this point who have told me, you know, I was in therapy for years, some of them decades. Um, and in all that time, I never got to this or I never got to this realization or this is the first time I've ever cried in therapy. Yes. (laughs) Oh, oh, well, there's, so then what was happening? What was going on? Maybe you were in a place where you weren't being pushed. Or the door wasn't being opened for you in the specific kind of way that you needed. So it's, yeah, it's amazing. It's the same that when you, you know, move away from the comfortable chair therapeutic space in the sense of sitting, plonking yourself in the chair, you know, I'm in my chair, client's in his or her chair, and there you go, and you do your your thing. Once you get away from that, so let's stand up. I know. Yes. Let's, let's move it's freedom. This. It's, it's freedom and it, it seems to be evocative immediately. People's, you know, that the emotions um, start to, well, people just feel, they feel something for, you know, and it's hard not to. And that, of course, most therapy, most and not all therapeutic change comes with emotion or comes in the context of emotion. So it seems that this weird thing, this thing called we move and we ask our clients to speak from this part or to this part, or, you know, whatever the exercise might be, um, whatever the dialogue might be, that there is immediate and the emotion. And so it makes sense then yeah. from my perspective that chair work would be so amazingly effective because emotion is always present. On, yeah. On, quick, or not necessarily always, but if it's not, you can soon, you know, you can soon get to it or you know it's not present and then you find yes, the Yes, and then we can move on to the to That's the correct right. thing at yeah. least. So it yeah. sort of it does save time, I would say. <laughs> There's a level of efficiency that can be there. Right. Okay, so we know that you're saying this was the clinical issue. We're working on it and nothing's coming up. Yes. So either there's a part of you that's protecting you, that's kind of blocking, yeah. or we've misidentified the issue. Yes, indeed. And it helps that's us figure that out. Yeah, that's yes. super powerful, isn't it? So it's efficient and quick. Can I can I go back for a minute here to the four dialogues? And mm-hmm. and I know that our listeners will probably want to dive dive deeper into this stuff and do some reading by Scott's book and um, mm-hmm. learn about you know some more about it. But I wonder whether you might spend spend a few more minutes just describing uh, the four dialogues just with a couple of sentences, yeah. the, so people will have a bit of a you know a taster of what they're like. Is that okay? Yeah. Oh, yeah, right. yeah. So the first, the first. Let's see what order do I want to go in. Let's go it first with uh, giving voice. So, so the giving voice is one of the four dialogues, and that's where we have um, the patient move, you know, to another chair, or they just move a few inches, depending on the setup of the space. But they make a physical shift, and then they channel or they give voice to a part of themselves or a mode, a part, a self, or a mode, and they become that part. So they literally become that part. So if someone's struggling with anxiety, what I like to have someone do initially is, why don't you move over and become the anxiety and let me hang out with them? And so I interview people's anxiety quite often um, and ask them, why are you so obsessed with this patient? You're up in their business all the time. What's what's going on with that? And I get their story. So that's giving voice. You can give voice to a part, um, a part we love or a difficult part. Second is um, we can think of relationships and encounters. So that's actually, let me go with giving voice. Let's go with internal dialogues, actually, second. So giving voice and then internal dialogues. So that's where we have uh, parts or modes engage with a dialogue with, with them themselves. Mm-hmm. 
right? So they're speaking with each other. So an example of that is like decision-making work. So we can have yeah. the part of us, two chairs set up across from each other. We stand behind one. We speak from the part that, again, with this case example, you know, I want to tell my parents what I'm actually doing with my career. You know, I've been hiding from them, my career path, but I want to tell them. And then the other side, stand behind the other chair. Right. I don't want to rock the boat. I want to stay safe. I'm going to keep this information from them. I'm going to keep my truth from them. And then we go back and forth many times. Okay. So that's a way to engage in internal dialogues. Yes. Yeah. Decision-making and our polarities. And then the third we can think of as uh, relationships and encounters. So that's, um, again, sort of imagine someone with you or someone is um, struggling in, like, say, their romantic relationship, all right? I want you to imagine um, your girlfriend, and I want you to talk to her about this horrible, you know, the sadness you have about the relationship, about what's going on. So you can have this person you know, express their sadness or their frustration, right? Yep, okay. Or we can do this with someone who's historically been an abuser, right? So. You can have a confrontation or you know, express rage, express sadness, all sorts of things. You know, how dare you hurt me? You know, you mm -hmm. had no right. Yes. Um, we can do this with difficult people um, or anyone, really. And if it's not an abuser, again, if it's not an abuser, I want to say that a third time. If it is not an abuser, we can do a role reversal. Do not do a role reversal with an abuser. Why, you ask? Yes, Everyone I do. Why? Because it's a bad idea. <laughs> and it's a bad idea. Tell us why it's a bad idea, Amanda. Um, it's a bad idea because when we do a role reversal, the gift of role reversal is empathy and understanding. When we play someone else, we understand them much better. Now, when we play someone else who's an abuser, that will complicate our feelings of justified anger and rage at the mistreatment we received. And that can undo the therapy. And now I feel bad for being mad at you because I understand you suffered as well. That's why it's a bad idea. So those of you out there who want to do relationships and encounters dialogues um, with abusive people in your client's history, please don't do a role reversal with them. Yeah. And you're trying to build the empathy and, and give them opportunity to, to speak mm -hmm. their truth and to have, yes. have an opportunity to, to speak strongly with anger and, and all yeah. the emotions to the all perpetrator, the all that stuff. Yeah. All the exactly. Right. And very naturally, when people get the space to go through that, um, to just speak freely, yep. people naturally will become less rageful over time anyway. People yeah, tend right. to not stay in rage and in anger. They I usually like to, will... I like to think that on. anger and rage is a good place to go for a short holiday, but you wouldn't want to live there. You don't want it? to live there. Right. Healing is on the other side of rage and anger, yes. but uh, you, yeah. you stay and live there, then it's not great. It's not. It's a, yeah. At some point, it's not. It's not protective. It's not helpful yeah. anymore. Yeah. It's not energizing. Yeah. So, but people will tend to that tends to come down naturally anyway. Um, so that's uh, relationships and encounters, yeah. and then then the last well, storytelling. Um, storytelling, yes, indeed. Yes, and that is where we have. Um, uh, a patient moved to, again, a different spot um, or a different chair, and they express the story or the memory of the difficult or traumatic thing that happened to them. Um, and that's very different than telling their therapist or their best friend directly that they're not gearing the story toward an audience. It's just the pure expression of it. Um, and so we have them do that three times. So it's that's also a, yeah, kind of a really intense one. So I think that's, yeah, that's helpful. So we've, those the four dialogues, relationships and encounters, giving voice, internal dialogues, and the storytelling. And as we've said, every clinical problem that walks in the door can be can be you know can fit into one of those. Yep. What would you call them? Dialogues? Is that the right word? Yeah, yeah. One yeah. of the yep. One yep. of the four dialogues. Like uh, that example you gave me earlier. I very quickly came up with, oh, we could do relationships and encounters work. We could do polarities work. Do I want to change the dynamic of my family or not? Like, what do, what do I want to do? Yes. Um, so that's making a decision. And then giving voice. And let me give voice to the part of myself that maybe um, wants to be more independent or wants to come into my own identity. And then the part of myself that wants to follow tradition, wants to follow culture, wants to be more family oriented. Um, so I mean, right there, just right away, four. I'm like, oh, three of the four dialogues I can think of. Yeah, I get a bit hung up on getting the right dialogue, I think. And so I probably need to loosen myself up a bit, or, uh, you know, and just let let it come more naturally. Because I think, I think some people like, to, I've got to get the right dialogue here. I have to think of the right thing 
which one is it that I need to focus on here? And if I'm going to do something else, it's the wrong dialogue. Or, yeah. Uh, but that's probably not that important. Um, it is and we can always change course. Okay. As long as we're just doing one thing at a time. Yeah, okay. Let's not try to do all four dialogues all at once. But <laughs> hey, if we're doing, you know, relationships and encounters and something emerges, it's like, actually, I think there's a story here. Okay, then maybe that's where we go next time. Or five minutes in, let's change course. So we've got the four dialogues and we know we're up to now. I really want to talk about trauma and yeah. um, uh, using chair work with trauma. I'll just talk a little bit about that. And I, uh, in doing so, I just want to share a little bit of one, of one of my staff said to me yesterday, she was saying how she was used, she'd been to the training and she was talking about, um, if I get this right, uh, using rather than using some other sort of trauma well-known trauma-focused therapies you know she said she's just going to get her to tell the story not from the um the first person but the third person and because we know we're used to doing prolonged exposure or or you know or imagery scripting it's from the very much the first person but she thought she'd try uh, the second telling she because the first telling wasn't much emotion and so the third she did yeah. the second telling from the third person and a whole bunch of other stuff came up so i'm wondering from your perspective, how um, chair work, what makes it so powerful working with trauma, do you think? Oh, everything. <laughs> yeah, good question. Well, um, yeah, well, it, you know, I think that um, much of the time uh, other uh, therapists who maybe aren't so exposed to chair work can really misunderstand um, the power of chair work and also the, the, the safety that's in it. That it's something that is so intense, but also creates such an incredible container for the client and for you know for the therapist. Um, so yes, with the storytelling, right, that that goes with the basic structure. We have them go to the different chair and they tell yeah. the story three times. And now both myself and Scott really emphasizing third person storytelling actually yeah. instead of second or first. So that's yes, um, indeed. Telling the story as if it happened to someone else. So, so once upon a time, there was a girl named Amanda, and this is what happened to her. So that's how the tense. They do it the three times, and um, it's amazing in that you know, like what you were saying, more information comes in. Yes. <laughs> the 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 structure of the story can change sometimes quite dramatically. Sometimes the focus of it will even change. Um, yes, indeed. But totally organically. So there's something yeah. about engaging with it there it's organic's a great word because there are you know there are things that you you don't know you don't know what's going to happen mm-hmm. you know you, you don't know what's going to be said and um and and you can you can say that to the client i don't know what's going to come out that's just let's just that's see. yeah let's just do it yeah and with it so um so trauma focused chair work is that well how would you describe trauma focused chair work Trauma-focused chair work is essentially just the application of, you know, chair work psychotherapy, but just working with with trauma. So it, that's really focused on two of the four dialogues, although we use all four. But the essential two are storytelling, so trauma-centered storytelling, um, and then relationships and encounters, which is uh, – that would include a confrontational dialogue when someone's gone through interpersonal mistreatment. So doing the storytelling, allowing for that repeated exposure – Yes, um, right. to happen to grow the the tolerance for the the trauma content so the patient gets tolerance for it their window of tolerance grows we get tolerance for the content so i think it's protective for both for both individuals in the process um so this and integration happens there right yes. right and then relationships and encounters they have the opportunity to engage with people who harmed them or bystanders who were there and didn't intervene yes indeed. Um, yeah yeah and they can yeah. more importantly have also we hope we encourage them to have um supportive dialogues with 
the again if it's childhood mistreatment with the child self that was harmed so they can that's where you know for the schema therapy people out there some reparenting can happen um but they can really talk to that child and tell them tell them good things you know i know everyone says you're ugly or you're being told something's wrong with you but i love you you're beautiful you're good and that's a really important part of relationships and encounters and so well, we've got these two components for working with trauma that's um, okay it, and um and I'm curious to know whether there's any research using this particular, um, you know, modality, using these two dialogues with trauma work. And because I'm a, I like to, I do quite a bit of trauma work and I'm thinking, well, I'll put my trauma hat on and I, I know that the evidence-based treatments are the X, Y, Z and ABC. You know, there are four, three or four um, trauma-focused therapies. But it seems to me that this kind of approach would lend itself to some lovely research to, to look at the um, effectiveness you know and efficiency and um change i don't know it what do you think i would love it if someone were to do this research so anyone who feels so moved yeah. please do that and let me know how it goes yeah. <laughs> i don't think there is you know is there this no. point and it just seems like this would be fantastic to see yeah um, okay and so often the research that is done they don't really isolate chair work itself yeah. from the existing um, modalities that are at play or therapeutic frameworks. Yes. Yeah. So it's not, I'm not really sure well, what is it that's moving the needle here? That's a good is way it chair work it. itself or is it something else? Um, so I think, yeah, the, if there's going to be chair work, it's got to be chair work as the psychotherapeutic modality. This is the yeah. thing and this yeah. is the only thing. But so often it's kind of muddled up a little bit. Well, there we go. Put anybody out there who's keen on... Uh... Uh, studying this, please uh, talk to your supervisor. And uh, this is a great little project, I reckon. All right. I would like to know about liberation of focused chair work. Can, I don't know what that is. Can you tell me about that? So, um, again, it's sort of like sort of thinking about a little an egg within an egg within an egg. So we have the chair work psychotherapy, four dialogues, and then trauma focused chair work, and then liberation focused inside of that. Okay. So, so we can think about liberation focused chair work psychotherapy as the specific application of trauma-focused chair work and the four dialogues when you're working with historically oppressed or marginalized people and those related issues. Okay. How um, does that look? So that, so that would look like, um, you know, so there's um, what I've defined as uh, kind of the five core problems of oppression. So these are five core things we, we will usually see emerge from someone who has one or more historically or currently oppressed identities or parts. So um, these five core problems, we have socially induced trauma. So that's, you know, when someone experiences outright intimidation or assaults or even a microaggression based on one of their identities, one or more. Or the second is internalized oppression. So that can look like self-hatred or colorism. Um, colorism. Mm-hmm. So colorism, that's that's where we see this all over the world, essentially. Um, the unfortunately a very universal problem. So that's where populations with historically um, brown or very dark skin will elevate pale skin. Okay. Over melanin rich skin. So that's where we see in certain countries where skin bleaching is very popular. So you want to be very pale, or where where kids will be discouraged from being in the sun because the family doesn't want them to tan. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Or where, you know, lighter-skinned people are, are labeled by their larger society or community as more beautiful. Um, okay. And, and yeah, we see this play out all over the world all the time. So that can look, that's essentially, that's internalized oppression, right? I see, yes. Um, where it's the, it's your own people who are carrying this out. Right? And the third core problem um, is identity conflict. So that's where... We're in conflict with one or more of our identities, so maybe we're repressing some of them when we're in the world, or we're over-identifying with some of them when we're in the world. Can you give me an example? Just yeah, help me understand. Yeah. Um, so that might be say so, say someone is biracial, mm-hmm. so again, depending on on their appearance, they may kind of hide their background again, depending on on appearance and such. Um, so they may not tell people of their biracial identity. So that's the other hiding a part of themselves, or they may over identify with one aspect of their identity over all the rest. So I'm only going to identify with this one part of my racial identity. I'm going to hide the others or 
but this can happen with um, race, uh, various cultures, religious identities, everything. Mm. Okay, that makes so it could be hiding or yeah, or over identifying. With, um, through fear or yeah, through fear, much of the time survival yeah, or right. perceived rejection that right. kind of anticipating rejection or anticipating difficulty. Mm-hmm. If I tell people about my poverty background, they won't accept me. Right. They won't accept me at this job or in this academic institution. Right. So I'm going to repress a part of me. Or they internalize um, it. Maybe uh, don't re- I reject myself. I reject my own, yeah. you know, myself because yeah. of my own mm-hmm. um, poverty or my own background. Yeah. Yes. So yes. Yeah. 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 So then, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Other people that, knew that what my childhood me. was like. They would want to be my friend or they exactly. Yeah. 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 So this is this is a secret. This will now be a secret. Really important, isn't it? That. Yeah. Yes. That you reject a part of you. Yeah. Because I mean, it's hard to, you can't get rid of parts, it seems. There. No, they're there. <laughs> so yeah. we do that. Issues, we're going to have a problem. <laughs> Problems are going to happen when we do that. Um, and then the fourth core problem is connection to voice. So that can look like difficulties with assertiveness. So that can be maybe I don't have a voice at all. So there's a little bit of what was coming up in the in the case you brought up earlier. You know, I don't, I don't know about using my voice. I'm uncomfortable with it. Or maybe I don't know how to use my voice in a way that's that's healthy and effective. So I'm I'm aggressive. Right? I'm screaming when I just need to be firm. I'm shouting. I'm you know alienating myself with this aggressiveness because my connection to my voice is broken again because of my experiences of oppression. So either I'm frightened to speak, or I'm frightened of what will happen if I don't speak. Mm-hmm. The last oppression-rooted coping. So this is uh, oppression-rooted coping. Uh, yeah. I'm so happy with this one. So we can, yeah. <laughs> so we can think about you know um, the different coping behaviors um, that we can have. So some people it's uh, maybe overspending or substance use or you know all sorts of things. Right. Mm-hmm. There's a whole whole range of ways that we can cope. Um, but in the context of the core problems, we are understanding the coping behavior as an attempt to alleviate suffering in direct relationship to experiencing present and or historical oppression. So, so maybe I'm engaging in something, right, just to, to soothe myself, to comfort myself, to make up for something that's been lost. So we're not pathologizing the coping behavior, but understanding it in a wider context. Can you flesh that out with a exa- little example for our listeners? Yeah, yeah. So, um, so I think... We're all pretty familiar with um, substance use, right? That's this is a real alive thing. So, you know, in, in the U.S., unfortunately, the Native American populations, there's a lot of of issues with substance abuse, um, and that I feel is very directly connected to the suffering of those people, mm-hmm. uh, the the genocide that they experienced in the U- in U.S. history and ongoing attacks and ongoing mistreatment. You know, things continue. Um, to, to be to be really bad um, so right engaging in substance use and in intense substance use you think of this is a way so I can numb out so I don't feel like I'm in so much pain or this is a way for me to deal with my day-to-day existence that I don't have anything to give my family I don't have opportunity and that is such a painful reality or people who who are who are homeless who are you know engaging with drug use every day well some people need to be altered in order to deal with sleeping outside because it's so frightening or it's so disturbing. It's like, how can I exist? You know, my reality is so horrifying or so painful. I need to engage in something to live. So how would you work with that, you know, in your virtual space? So I'd want to start with curiosity, which I like to do. Um, You know, if I work with someone and they engage in a lot of maybe um, binge drug or binge drinking um, usage or self-harm, because that's another, another maladaptive coping. Um, so I treat it as a part. So move over, become, become the part of you and let me, let me speak with them. And I ask them questions. So who are you? You know, where do you come from? How long have you been in this person's life? Um, so they might say, well, you know, um, little Susie started drinking with her friends when she was 16. And at the time she was really stressed out by things going on at home or, you know, sensing that she was going to have little access to education because of where she's from. And 
she discovered that when she was with me, she wasn't she wasn't so stressed out about her future, or she wasn't so frightened okay, of the world. And so I've been with her ever since. So we want to get the story first. Um, mm -hmm. And I like to do that with parts that are responsible for self-harming behavior. Kind of, I want to get to know you, I'm not out here to initially judge you. Might not like like you so much, but I, I want to be curious. Right. It's often the judging. It comes, doesn't mm -hmm. it? The judging comes so yeah. quickly generally. We don't give voice. We don't put the part in the chair. So just, we just want to have a chat. Mm -hmm. Help us understand. And I guess when that, I'm thinking when that happens and the other parts yes. are listening too, if you like. They are. They are. Um, so it's kind of. Again, I'm not in, it's not we're endorsing the unhealthy behavior, but it's I'm giving this a level of compassion so that maybe we might be able to work together. Maybe. But if we figure out that there's some kind of very cruel, untrustworthy energy behind you, you're not about trying to protect or help or comfort this client, then maybe we can take a different road and try to, um, you know, get rid of you by doing other work. But the interview was so important, just getting to know them. How much of your work um, as out of interest is in this kind of liberation-focused area? Is it a particular interest? It of is. Um, because, yeah. I, you know, historically I had been very interested in working with um, marginalized communities, people, um, very interested in um, LGBTQ issues, women's issues, um, and that's – the clinical site where I was as a graduate student was focused on LGBTQ young people. Um, so it's really something that I'd been drawn to for a very long time. But in doing that work, I sort of understand that outside of, of those spheres, the work wasn't really respected as, as being as vital and important as it should be. So to, to say it more simply, I understood that these were always seen by others as sort of the elective module, sort of the special, the special episode and not relevant as all the other things that we're trained in and that we learn that, oh, this is a special population. This is a niche issue, but we're not understanding this, that suffering is suffering. Trauma is trauma. So we want to have specific, you know, education, special training, et cetera, but I really didn't like how it was being pushed aside um, and that would become closer in the larger, larger sphere, larger um, cultural sphere, depending on the trends of the day, because trends, trends come and go, right? They go. That's the problem when they something's do. trendy, when it's an elective, when it's an add on. So part of me sort of coming to this liberation focused thing and the core problems of oppression is I'm wanting this to not just be seen as the, the add on thing this is a, a core thing because trauma is trauma at the end of the day so the liberation this the, the five if i've got this right the five pillars of liberation focused chair work is this something that you've created yes I, I, yeah okay and i imagine our listeners can learn about it or pop it up on the facebook page if there's some reading people can do yeah i have curious. um let's see i have an article that i wrote for the isst bulletin uh, i think it was I don't know if it was two or three years ago now, um, but that's where I really first developed the the five core problems and defined them. Okay, well, I will pop that link up on the Facebook page for people to look at. So, if um, quite a bit of your work, therefore, is around because there's a bit of a passion yeah. for you yeah. work in this space, and um, but then I guess you just got whoever walks in the door wants mm -hmm. to see Amanda. We do share work. work and we'll, we'll... Yeah. And and this, these things come up related to oppression more often than I think they would. So often over time, people kind of understand, you know, when they have that connection to the multiplicity of self that, hey, I'm made of many parts. <laughs> oh, that means, yeah, some of these parts have experienced mistreatment. Or maybe the part of me that, you know, as a kid and as an adult has a learning disorder. Well, there was some mistreatment or injustice there. Or maybe it's the part of me that had, that was raised in a different religion as my peers. Or there was some, right? was being pushed away or of course it can be a multicultural thing um, a race a race related issue social class maybe I, I did come from an impoverished background and everything everything in some way tends to play out with with related to oppression gender you know all, all sorts of things so it's actually quite quite common and you've got, I think you're, I mean, hearing this is making me think about my client load and so I think I'm, I probably missed, you know, or that have, I haven't been quite sure what to deal with. And one of my clients comes to mind who, are, 
you know, who is, you know, ed- university educated and uh, um, doing quite well in life, but definitely comes from a lower socioeconomic uh, family. There were lots of you know, drug addiction and suicide and very difficult family. She sort of stepped, stepped away completely from that. But I think, listening to you, she struggled with her own relationship within herself around that, you know, who she is, like an identity. You know, she's not comfortable with her family of origin and doesn't have anything to do with them as a result of that. It's an internalised phobia of her, if you like, of her own family of origin. If you're, I'm, I'm thinking on the fly here, but I can see how damaging that could be. If, you, if that's Yeah, I mean, well, again, it would depend on what's the issue for the client, but... We're yeah. just owning a part yeah. of ourselves so intensely. It's sort of like we're ripping off our own limb. Like we might be able to get around, might be able to do things, but we have forcibly removed something from ourselves that is a core part of ourselves. Not a good idea. Yeah. So there's you're right. There's a, there can be pain, shame. So so thinking about it in that way, then all right. Well, what can we do to facilitate if they want reconnection with that part, or where does that part live now in their life? Where can it come in? So it seems that having, like we talk about having a trauma-informed practice, um, then having, uh, what's, what would be the term here? Uh, disowned? Well, they said in the, in, actually in voice dialogue, in voice dialogue is the, pre, the precursor to IFS, um, but in voice dialogue, you talk about the disowned yeah, right. selves. Um, right. In, okay. in that practice, it's um, sort of really... Uh, had led the way in acknowledging the the beauty and the strengths that these disowned parts can have. And I think pearls is also all about that too. If we can recover these disowned things and what energy can come in, what creativity can come in, what's possible. So for this, this client, you know, that person gives voice to, to, to the, you know, maybe the, the, you know, the, the poor girl, right? So interviewing that part, being with it, that part might say, well, you know, I was, I was with them and, but around the time they were 20 or 25, they pushed me away. And then, and then, you know, maybe we do some storytelling. So where there's some painful, difficult, or maybe even traumatic stories for this person to work with. Um, and, but I love doing this parts work, because giving voice, you know, we can think of it as parts work with people who are having this identity clash or conflict, because we can give each part a chair and they can become it. They can sort of decide, do I want you close? Don't you far? What from you do I want to keep? What from you do I want to let go? Indeed. Yeah. yeah it's just. Yeah, sounds like so much work can be done there. That sounds um, very freeing and interesting. and So, so great. Yes. And, you know, I've had, I've had women who maybe don't have a lot of trauma in their history, but maybe they're, they're experiencing something in the workplace where they're suspecting for the first time that their gender is becoming an issue for them. Maybe. So, you know, done work where, okay, talk to men. Let's put all the men in the chair over there. Or is it you have an issue, there's some good men, but there's some bad men. You know, what's going on? Let's do a vector dialogue. Um, or maybe we'll split you. These are the f- difficult feelings I have towards you, and these are the positive feelings I have mm. towards you. So pretty much anyone can do this with any other, you know, people. Just what, what, is, what is going on here? I want to repair okay, the relationship, yes, or I want to figure this out with myself. I've had people imagine, you know, uh, the government <laughs> sitting in the chair across them and they talk to them. My life's so difficult or I trusted you and you betrayed us or you betrayed me. I've had people talk to the police, you know, I was just at a party with my friends and you came in and you ruined it for us and you frightened me and I resent you. Um, so you can have people play things out um, where I don't have to have the answers. Yeah. I'm wondering about training. Um, uh, what do you think is the important training um for folk listening who might you know be thinking i wouldn't mind doing some of this in my practice what would you recommend as kind of the basic training for chair work practice i think a good place to start is actually by by getting scott's book so um so um transformational chair work using psychotherapeutic dialogues in clinical practice i'm pretty sure that's the full title they wrote that before discovering the four dialogues in 2018, um, but it has sort of a really great scripts in there. So you're kind of like reading sessions um, and how that plays out. He has the using chair work for this clinical issue, for that clinical issue, for, for alcoholism, for you know experience injustice, for depression. You know, um, so that's very interesting. Also, Gestalt therapy verbatim. 
is is amazing. Um, sort of okay. really reading what was Pearls doing. All right. It does have kind of more clinical transcripts in there. One of the older pieces of literature that's great. The piece of its time and has so much, yeah, a lot of amazing things in there. Um, read those two books. And if you want some training, hey, I know of an organization called. No, oh, you could help out. Well, there's plenty of virtual stuff on, on isn't there? Online stuff that you guys. So are um, when now, the pandemic began, yeah. we quickly sort of transitioned to offering virtual trainings, whereas before everything was in person. Um, so we've done a lot of online trainings for people in all sorts of different parts of the world, some for Australia as well. We recently did one for, for Singapore a couple of months ago, um, for the UK, we've done that recently. So we do a lot of online things, um, and we do things out of New York. So, uh, at the moment, yeah, yeah. So you can so do that training, do an intensive training, um, which is a great way to kind of get your feet wet, get a sense of what's going on. Just put in a, a vote for uh, in, on face-to-face training if you can, because that you know that it's hard to put into words, isn't it? The connection that people have in the space and the safety and the emotional for, things you learn about yourself and the group is so amazing. Um, so we're talking about that as the basic training before before kind of launching into this, because it seems you really need to have some clinical skill as well, you know, and approach in using utilizing these dialogues, you know, because you can. Can you go wrong? Can you can you do damage with these things if you're not kind of skilled I would say, up? I don't know about I don't know about damage, um, but I would say I know that with some other uh, practitioners who maybe have sort of tried chair work, they kind of well, I don't I don't understand why 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 is this so powerful or I don't I don't get it. I did it and it didn't nothing really happened. It's like well, it's probably because you didn't commit. So like with any practice or with any modality, you have to fully commit for something to happen. So you got to really follow where we have some four, we have some basic principles of chair work, uh, psychotherapy that I didn't go over, but so there's the four principles of very basic things in the four dialogues, but you have to fully commit to it and trust it and things will happen. They pretty much always, something, something will always happen. Um, so if people are interested, and Scott and I did a, a, a mid-pandemic um, interview around the four dialogues, so people are interested to hear some an hours. We talk about them in detail so they can go back and listen through the clinically thinking. And, okay, good. Yeah, so anything I missed. Anything, yeah, yeah. <laughs> He's got fine. over. We've done that. We've done that. One. Right. Um, all right. So that sounds great. Um, one last yeah. sort of series of questions I just want to ask around your practice. You said it was 100% virtual. It is. I'm curious to know how that works and how you make that work for you. Yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm so surprised I have a virtual practice. I was one of those um one of those practitioners before who's like, ah no, I want people to come into my office and in person. It's the commitment, you know. Obviously the pandemic happened. Um, we all know about that. It's interesting in that when I was when I transitioned to virtual for the pandemic and connecting with colleagues and stuff throughout. And I would hear them sort of ask me, you know, gosh, I'm having people who just don't want to continue therapy with me because they want to see me in person. So they're dropping out. Okay. I didn't have that problem. And what would you make of that? I think it's because I do chair work. Okay. It's more powerful. That, connection. That it's, yes, chair work is so powerful that – I don't even need to see you to do it. I can be on the phone with you and just hear your voice and some deep things can happen because it's about, I'll direct the shift. I'll tell you where to move, where to go, suggest the lines or be there and witness whatever it is that we're doing. But chair work is so powerful. Yes. In some ways it really can't be held back (laughs) by the virtual space. Yes. Um, Okay. I mean, in person brings a different element of course, but um, I've, I've, I haven't, I didn't have that complaint with anybody and still haven't. I've been very, very fortunate um, that it's that powerful. It's so powerful. For people that are interested, I am, um, I, I joined the, actually I joined a Facebook group, Chairwork Facebook group. So I'm putting it out there now around the world after the workshops. Um, and on there, there was a video of Remco showing, demonstrating how to do chair work virtually. I know he, he's a, he comes from a schema therapy perspective, but nevertheless, there's still some, 
you know, there's some theatre in my mind to, to bear with. Yes, wagon. there is. And especially if you're going to be a virtual, you you know, you are a television screen or a phone. That's you know, you've got to learn some different skills around yeah. how to how to work the space. You know, how to block yeah, you get to get, get your bearings, block things out. Yeah. Um, you know, Rem, Remco is, I know, really takes things even to a different direction where he'll use his side of the screen as well. So he'll offer yeah, to put that. someone's inner critic or difficult person on his side of the screen yeah, and he'll do the right, work that way. I've, I've never done that because I'm not that creative in the moment <laughs> when I'm practicing. But yeah, there's so much is possible. Um, and, you know, others and, but also ourselves, we put out a, um, uh, sort of a handy sort of guideline sheet for doing chair work teletherapy. Um, and that's on our website, chairworkpsychotherapy.com, as well as a number of other articles and writings. It's, it's a free download. We'll put those all up for people, for listeners, so that they can. But yeah, it's very basic guidelines to keep in mind. But yeah, I would say um, don't not do chair work because you think you don't have or they don't have enough chairs. Chairs oh, yeah. are just a tool. They're a useful tool, but chair work isn't about chairs. So. And a great place to <laughs> wind up, I reckon, a great way to finish. So, look, yeah. thank you so much for making yourself thank available. You. Thank you. Clinically thinking, and it's great to see you and speak with you again. So good to see you, Lisa. Uh, yeah, lovely. And wish you all the very best. Thank you. You too. And you're an incredible supporter. Thanks for listening today. We really hope you found that interview helpful and interesting. As always, go straight to our uh, Clinically Thinking Facebook page and you'll find links to various relevant books and articles that we hope you find interesting. That's all from us. I'm Dr. Lisa Chandler. Thanks for listening.